Would you please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. And if you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 953 and 954. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 7. So let's give a little context of where we are. Paul is here is addressing the issue of divisions in the church. And we've really been looking at this same issue, this same rebuke, since the first chapter. And at the heart of these divisions is worldly thinking. The Corinthians, they're immature. Paul calls them infants in Christ. And in their attitudes, they're really indistinguishable from unbelievers. And last week we saw how Paul addressed the unhealthy, sinful hero worship that was taking place in the Corinthian church. And Paul makes it clear that these leaders, they're not heroes. They're simply servants. They're simply laborers for Christ. The increase does not come from them. It comes from God, the one to whom these leaders are to point. And as we discussed last week, all of us face this temptation. All of us feel this temptation of of wanting to be the hero, of wanting to be the one who has all the answers, wanting people to look up to us. We're all tempted, really, to, to steal Christ's glory and steal it for ourselves. But people are fickle. And just as quick as they are to elevate a person to be a hero, to hero status... They're even quicker to to tear down the hero should he fail to continue to give him what they want. See, being a hero is a lot like trying to ride on the back of of a tiger. You know, as as long as you're riding on the back, you're okay. But trying to get off without getting eaten is very difficult. And this is what they're finding out. So Paul here addresses this opposite extreme. See, in chapter 3, he was looking at the dangers and sins of worshiping these leaders, including himself. Well, here in chapter 4, he addresses the critics of these leaders. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Here now the word of the living God. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We need your spirit. Lord, as we look at your word, we know your word is true. We know your word is beneficial. Your word is useful to build us up. Oh, but we are so dull. I am so dull. Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will open my tongue, that I will, that I will speak your words with power. I pray, Father, that you will open each of our ears, that we will hear from you. Open our hearts, that we will hear from you. We will see you. We will be changed by this encounter that we have with you. And above all, you will be glorified by this time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think about a time when someone slandered you, or maybe slighted you, or or, or said something that was untrue to you, something that was unkind. 
Something that might have been meant to, to hurt you. Something meant to, to make you look bad. To make you look small. How did it make you feel? And all of us has had this happen to us at one time or another. It could have been an unfair criticism. It could be a rumor. It could be gossip aimed at us. What is your first reaction? What is your first reaction when you hear this type of slander? Do you want to set the record straight? Do you want to defend yourself? Do you want to justify what you have done? Make excuses for what you have done? Clarify what you have done? And we all do this. We all do this, even if it's not malicious. Maybe it could just be a a misunderstanding. But we all have this intense desire to defend ourselves, to defend our reputations. We are very much concerned with what others think about us. And mostly the time, the consequences of these types of of slights are are hurt feelings, are, are wounded pride. But sometimes they're more. Sometimes the consequences can be very tangible. And now, now in our culture today, it seems like the, the stakes are getting much higher. We, ha- we have the cancel culture. And now accusations that someone says, um, or something that you may have said at one time, something that may have even been true, if they're out of step with the, the current norms of the mob, these things could have very tangible consequences. People lose their jobs because of these things. People get blacklisted in the uh, industry, in the field that, that they are in. And I know people personally who have unfairly lost their job because of slander, because of untrue accusations. And this treatment has a very real economic impact. And there are even some people who have been unjustly accused of crimes, have lost their freedom because of these types of attacks, because they have opposed the ever-changing whims of the crowd. There are even people, sadly, throughout church history who even lost their lives unjustly, because of unjust accusations. And as Christians, we find it more and more difficult. We see the the, the basic tenets of our faith, the foundational principles of Christianity, the very words of Scripture itself are drawing hostility, are drawing attack. And not only from the unbelieving world, we can understand that, but even within the church, we are getting attacked, within the visible church. So what do we do? How do we defend ourselves? How do we justify ourselves? Can we live with, at peace with all? Right? We want all people to love us, but how do we actually make this happen? How do we do this? Well, I think Paul helps us to deal with our current situation by changing our way of thinking. He does this when he looks at how he deals with the criticism that came to him, and the criticism that came to Apollos. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to basically go through this passage verse by verse and see how Paul uses it to help us change our perspective in dealing with the type of criticism that we will face. And then we'll, at the end, we'll look at three very brief applications. So let's start off in verse 1. Paul here addresses, the Corinthians, um, addresses how the Corinthians should rightly view their spiritual leaders, how they should regard Paul, how they should regard Paulus or, or, or Apollos. And while Paul is speaking specifically about himself, he's speaking specifically about Apollos, another leader, in a sense, this passage is applicable to all Christians. This is how each one of us should be regarded. So look at verse 1. It says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
See, it's not just true for Paul. It's not just true for Apollos. If you are a Christian, this is true for you. We are servants of Christ. This word translated here refers to one who, who attends to or exercises the authority for another. This means that the authority does not originate in us. It's not our, it's not our authority. It means it comes from Christ. It means Christ calls the shots. And one way that we function as servants of Christ, not the only way, but the way that's addressed in this passage, is that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. So what does this mean? Well, a steward is a person that's entrusted with authority. You can think of a manager, a guardian, an agent. The steward has authority, but it's, it's not an independent authority. And the steward does not act on his own behalf. He acts on behalf of the one for whom he is a steward. And a stewardship is something that is entrusted to us. So what here is entrusted to us? Well, here it's the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God. Just think about that for a second. The mysteries of God. See, God has revealed through his Holy Spirit these mysteries. He has revealed things about himself. He has revealed things about us. He's revealed his character, how he works in the world, our destiny, the destiny of the world. He's revealed our hope. He's revealed things that we could never discover on our own. And here there is an important distinction between us and Paul. See, Paul and the other biblical authors, they were given direct, infallible, inerrant, objective revelation by the Holy Spirit. And this revelation was then written down. It was recorded, preserved by the Holy Spirit in sacred scripture. And the church, the church is the steward entrusted with this scripture. And the church is, we study this scripture. We expound this scripture. We proclaim this scripture. We apply it, apply it to our lives. But even as individual Christians, we also have the Holy Spirit. And for us individual Christians, the Holy Spirit illuminates these mysteries that are found in scripture. And it gives us the ability to understand what the Scripture says, these mysteries of God. It gives us the ability to embrace the mysteries of God. It gives us the ability to love these mysteries of God. And the most important, the premier mystery of God that has been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit is the gospel of grace. And my friends, this is the answer to humanity's most urgent and serious problem. Right, you'll see, people always tell you what the most urgent and serious problem is. Some will say, oh, it's, it's COVID now. It's not COVID. Some will say, oh, it's global warming. It's not global warming. It's not socialism. It's not racism. It's not wokeism. It's not any other ism you can think of. Our most pressing problem that we have is God. God is the most pressing problem we have. Our most pressing problem is God. Our problem is that God is all-powerful, that God is all-knowing, that God is holy. And we are not. And we are guilty. We are rebellious. We are sinners. And we justly deserve to face God's anger, God's judgment, God's punishment. And our biggest problem is that in and of ourselves, there is absolutely nothing we can do about it. This is more dangerous than if an if a, if a asteroid was heading toward the earth, about to annihilate the earth. At least there, there's some technological things we can do. But in God, there is absolutely nothing we can do about this problem. And this condition, a condition that we, we intuitively know, we each intuitively know, we try to hide it, we try to repress it, we try to distract ourselves, but we all know it. And this condition is accurately articulated in Ephesians chapter 2, in the verse, first three verses. 
It says, and you, and this is we're speaking to every single person who's ever lived other than Jesus Christ, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is, following Satan, following the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, this is our biggest, most serious, most urgent crisis facing every single one of us, individually and collectively. We are by nature children of wrath. That means we are uh, by nature under God's wrath. And there is absolutely nothing we can do about it in and of ourselves to change this fact. But the most glorious mystery of God, a mystery by which we, if we're Christians, we are stewards of this mystery, provides the answer. And the answer comes not from us, the answer comes from God. And the answer is the gospel. So the truth is, as we've just seen in Ephesians 2, that we are by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But the very next verse in Ephesians 2, gives the answer. It starts off with those beautiful words, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is our stewardship. This is what has been entrusted to us. And do you see how this reality, that we are stewards of this amazing answer to our number one problem, do you see how this changes our thinking? It puts everything else in perspective. It puts criticism in perspective. The criticisms that Paul faced. The criticisms that we face. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. So what does that mean? What, what is required of a steward? Well, we see the answer in verse 2. It says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful. See, a steward's not called to be successful, not called to be wealthy, not called to be popular, not called to be influential, admired, having an easy life. We are called to be faithful. And oftentimes, being faithful means that we will not have any of those other things. These are diametrically opposed to these other things. But that's what we are called. If you're a Christian, you are called to be faithful. You are a steward of the mysteries of God. You are called to be faithful to these things. And again, Paul shifts our perspective so that we should not be surprised when we face opposition. We should not be surprised when we face criticism, thinking that somehow we did something wrong. No, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, the criticism is itself a sign that we are doing something right. So how do we know? How do we know if we are being faithful? How do we evaluate our faithfulness? As, I, as I've said often, we may face criticism for being faithful, but we also may face criticism for being unfaithful, for being arrogant, for, for, for being a jerk. So how do we know? How do we know the difference? How do we know if the criticism, the persecution we're getting is because we're faithful to our calling or just because we're a jerk? How do we evaluate our faithfulness? Where do we look? 
Well, the most natural place for us to look, and we all do this, is to look to ourselves. Do we have to feel right to me? Am I doing the right thing? Or we look to others to affirm. And usually we look to others who think the same way as we do, so they'll affirm us. But this is not what Paul does. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, With me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. See, Paul recognizes that others can be wrong. Paul recognizes that he himself can be wrong. And these others can be wrong in two ways. They can either affirm that we're being faithful when we're not being faithful, just to, to make us feel better, or they can be critical and oppose us when we are actually being faithful to God. See, the, uh, the opinions of others are just not a, a reliable barometer for, to our faithfulness, to our stewardship of the, of the mysteries of God. But notice, neither is our own opinion. See, even the Apostle Paul did not trust his own opinion, did not trust his own judgment. He says in the first part of verse 4, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. See, Paul knows that he too can be deceived. And this deception, just like the deception of others, can be wrong in two ways, the same two ways. We can think we're being faithful when we're really only following our own fleshly desires, and I think that often happens. Or what also is the case, and this is probably the case with with a lot of people I know here, a lot of mature Christians, we can be self-critical, self-condemning, when we are indeed being faithful. Again, there are many people who I know who who have sensitive consciences, and they they wrongly self-condemn themselves when in fact they are being faithful. So if we can't, if we don't trust the judgments of others, we don't trust the judgments of ourselves, how do we evaluate our faithfulness? Well, thankfully, Paul gives us the answer in the next part of verse 4. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. The Lord judges me. See, the problem with people, both ourselves and others, is we are fickle in our judgments. Our opinions, our understandings, they are constantly changing. Right? Sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong, and they're, they're, they're in constant flux. And because of this, the judgments of people cannot be the unchangeable standard that we need. The standard is, the standard can only be the unchangeable judgment of the Lord himself. And this truth applies not only when we're evaluating our own faithfulness to the Lord, but also it applies when we are evaluating others. See, we're warned about judging others. And we see this in verse 5. Paul says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. See, we cannot judge another's heart. We cannot see it. We cannot evaluate if a person is faithful or not. We cannot pronounce judgment before the appropriate time. But notice there is a time. There is an appropriate time. And the verse tells us that this time is when the Lord returns. The second coming. This will be a time when all motives are made clear. They will be made known. Made known to all. None will miss it. And this will be a time when the things that are secret are disclosed. A time when the purposes of the heart are made known. A time when when light will shine in the darkness. And at this time, each one of us will receive our own commendation or we will receive a rebuke from the Lord. See, at this time, all deception will be gone. All obscurity in which we now live will be made clear. And we are to wait. We are to hold fast. We are to trust until that time. But what about now? What about now? 
It's great that, that one day everything will be made clear. It's great that one day all will see the truth. But what about now? How do we know the truth now? How can we be assured that we will receive a commendation from God and not a rebuke? Or even worse, a condemnation from the Lord. How do we know for certain we will not hear those awful words that came from the the lips of the Lord himself? Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Well, the answer to this question comes in verse 6. He says, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. See, here is the key to how we can be certain that we are faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. We do not go beyond what is written. That means we look to God's word. That's what is written. This means that we know God's perfect and unchangeable judgment by his word. We look to his word. God's word defines the content of the stewardship we've been given. God's word evaluates our faithfulness to the stewardship. And God's word shows us, those who are given the stewardship, those who are given the Holy Spirit's power of discernment, shows us now what will be made clear on that day, on Christ's return to all. And we cling to his word. And we don't go beyond his word. We don't go beyond what is written. But what does this mean? What does it mean not to go beyond what is written? Well, it means we don't look to our own wisdom. It means we don't look to be innovative. It means we don't look to be creative with God's word, to be original with God's word. See, remember, we are called to be stewards of the mysteries of God. This means that they are not our mysteries. We are not stewards of our own ideas or our own innovations. We are to proclaim. We are to live. We are to obey. We are to internalize God's word alone. And we are not to go beyond it. And what is the result if we do? If we go beyond God's word, if we go beyond what is written, well, the verse tells us that we become puffed up, full of ourselves, prideful. And what was the result of this pride? Well, we see this in in the Corinthian church. It was this worldly divisions that existed, that, that, that were bringing strife between the church. This is the whole reason for Paul's rebuke. And really, if you think about it, it makes sense, doesn't it? If we go beyond what is written, this would lead to pride. Because when we go beyond what was written, we, we cease to see ourselves as stewards of God's revelation, and we begin to see ourselves as innovators. We begin to see those, and to use an expression that I used way back in my manufacturing engineering days, we see that we add value to God's revelation. We add value to the mysteries of God. And if we're adding to God's mysteries, if, if we're bringing anything to the table with respect to these mysteries of God, then of course there is something that we have to. There's something to, to feel superiority, to feel pride in. But the truth is we add nothing. We are just simply proclaiming what has been given to us. There is nothing that we give. And Paul goes really after this sense of superiority, this pride, this faulty thinking directly in verse 7. He says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see that if we've received it, why do we boast as if it comes from ourselves? There is no room for pride. See, this great, magnificent mystery of God, the gospel itself, the only hope for mankind, it is great, but it doesn't originate with us. We simply give away what was given to us. And our only requirement is to be faithful, faithful to the steward. 
It's the stewardship. Which means we are to be accurately proclaiming, accurately representing, accurately living this. So how do we do this? How do we tie all this together? What, what is our takeaways from this? Well, I want to do three brief applications. So we see this, this, this criticism that Paul received, even from other believers. This is not unique. And the criticism that each of us received is not unique. We are all responsible. We, we all have it, and we are also responsible for, for doing it, for unjustly criticizing others. And this change in perspective that we see in this passage, it helps us when we feel intimidated by the world. It helps us when we're fearful of what others think of us, when we're fearful of a cancel culture, that we may be next. This helps us when we have this strong desire to justify ourselves. And the first thing we see here, the first thing is, remember we have been given the privilege to be stewards of the mysteries of God. Again, remember that. This is the calling each Christian has. We are we have a privilege of being stewards of the mysteries of God. This is not a common calling. This is an amazing calling. We have a commission from the king of the universe. And we must keep that in perspective. We must keep our eye on the ball, not get distracted from, from the noise in this fallen world. We are God's ambassadors with his message to his world. Why do we get distracted by these things? So what do we do? How, how do we put this in place? What, make it real. Well, it simply means we let the criticism go. We do not need to respond. We follow the example of our Lord in our gospel reading. He was silent before the false accusations. They brought him there. They were about to kill him. They were given false accusations. And does he say anything? He doesn't say a word. He doesn't even dignify them with a response. He made no attempt to justify himself. He simply trusted himself to God, to God's will. This is our model. When we face this type of unjust Criticism, let it go. Follow the example of Christ. Let it go. Trust ourselves to God. That's our first application. Our second is, remember our job is to be faithful. Faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. Faithful stewards of God's revelation. And this faithfulness is not determined by the opinions of a crowd, which will be fickle and, and, and go back and forth. It is not evaluated even by our own fickle judgments, our own opinions. It is evaluated only by the unchangeable judgment of the Lord as revealed in his word. And this judgment is hidden. It's hidden to those who neglect God's word. It's hidden to those who do not have the Holy Spirit to illuminate God's word. But brothers and sisters, it is given to us if we are in Christ. So we are to stand firm. We are to trust God's word. We are to be faithful to God's word despite any criticism that we receive from others, despite any self-doubt and self-condemnation that we receive, solely relying on this word, solely leaning on the promises of God that are revealed in his word. So this is our second takeaway. Our third and final application is beware of pride. Beware of pride. See, pride leads to the fear of men. It leads to this need to have to justify ourselves. It leads to us feeling that we are entitled to respect, entitled to speak people to speak well of us, entitled to be above any criticism, whether it's just or not. And if we have an accurate and humble understanding of ourselves, we will realize that if our Lord himself suffered unjust criticism, why should we be exempt? And above all, that if we focus on faithfulness, if we endure unjust and sinful criticism, at the proper time, at the proper time, all things will be made clear. God himself will vindicate us. We don't have to vindicate us. We don't have to justify ourselves. God himself 
will vindicate us, and it will be seen by all. So all we need to do is just wait and just trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do admit that these are difficult times when we are, when we are unjustly criticized. And Father, we pray that you will give us the grace, give us the perspective to see things the way Paul describes them, the way our Lord, your Son, saw things. He did not seek to justify himself. He trusted in you. We need that grace. Father, we pray that you give us that grace so that we can bring you glory and be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God that you have entrusted to us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.